Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am Director of ECFR and I'm very happy to present a special podcast on sanctions this week. This is a time when sanctions are very much in the news. They've become the weapon of choice for Western governments uh, when they want to signal their disapproval of uh, the behaviours of other countries around the world. But they've also become uh, widely used by other countries when a Turkish uh, missile shot down a Russian plane over Syria. Vladimir Putin's first port of call was introducing sanctions. And um, we've also seen China use sanctions against various other countries. And is one of the big topics in ECFR's essay collection, the connectivity wars, which looks at how migration, finance and trade are becoming the geoeconomic battlegrounds of the future. To help us make sense of the role of sanctions in European foreign policy, we have two uh, fantastic speakers. First up is Clara Portella, who's Assistant Professor of Political Science at Singapore Management University and is the author of the chapter on European sanctions in the connectivity wars. The second speaker is Jeremy Shapiro, back again, our research director, who used to be a member of the US State Department and saw sanctions playing an important role in American foreign policy as well. So, Clara, why don't you um, start by telling us about how you see uh, sanctions in European foreign policy? Sanctions have been the principal tool of uh, European foreign policy for uh, several decades. It's a shame that I cannot uh, show any graph, but actually if you look at the, um, at the number of sanctions imposed by the European Union uh, over the past uh, 30 years, you ex- and particularly after the, um, the establishment of the Common Foreign and Security Policy, you see that uh, the number of new sanctions regimes imposed remains stable. And, uh, well, actually, this is something that continues to our, uh, to our days. It might have, well, uh, the, the fact that the, that the sanctions against Iran and the sanctions against Russia have attracted so much attention uh, from the media uh, over the past couple of years might give the impression that this is a novelty in the common foreign and security policy. But uh, in reality, we have only witnessed a qualitative leap since 2010. In terms of numbers of sanctions regimes imposed by the EU against third countries, uh, we can actually see that uh, there was a peak at the beginning of the 1990s and that afterwards the number of sanctions regimes remained stable. So it is, uh, it is no novelty at all. Um, we, have, well, we have, however, uh, seen that the EU uh, over the past few years has become more, um, more bold in the uh, in sanctions tools that it selects in order to uh, target um, uh, other regimes. So when you say qualitatively, you mean that the, 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 quali- the type of sanctions imposed have changed? Exactly. In what way? Exactly. So in the 1990s, where the EU was already quite a prolific uh, a sanctions sender, uh, the sanctions imposed, the, type of, the types of sanctions imposed were limited to the same uh, triad that is also uh, um, present in the practice of the UN Security Council. It consisted uh, almost exclusively of arms embargoes, visa bans against a number of selected individuals, no, normally members of government, uh, and uh, also a few entities, but normally, well, the, the majority were really uh, individuals. And in a second step, uh, in, in 
an asset freeze would also be imposed on exactly the same uh, blacklist. Uh, however, uh, starting in 2010, we have seen how the how the EU has imposed bolder uh, financial sanctions. It has also acquired the practice of uh, imposing in commodity bans, which which uh, which were not present in uh, sanctions policy before. And uh, the the number of entities blacklisted has also uh, grown bigger to such an extent that sometimes by blacklisting a couple of entities, you manage to pretty much uh, put an entire sector of the economy uh, under under uh, under embargo. Which, uh, well, uh, apart from that, we can also see other interesting developments, such as the blacklisting of harbors. So uh, blacklisting of harbors. Harbors, yeah. What like where boats go? Exactly, okay. exactly. So they say, so they say ports. Okay. Perhaps ports is yeah. a bit easier to understand. Yeah. So in the case of Cote d'Ivoire, well, in the sanctions that were imposed on, um, on Cote d'Ivoire at the beginning of 2011, uh, the two main international harbors of the country were blacklisted, meaning that any trade conducted via these ports uh, became illegal. Uh, same thing happened with Libya. Wow. So this, I mean, this, uh, these are really developments that were unheard of during the 1990s. Okay. So, Jeremy, um, Obama is famously quite keen on sanctions as well. But to, to what extent uh, has America been following or driving this kind of um, vote for sanctions? Um, well, I'm sure there'd be disagreement on the, across the Atlantic about who is who is driving and who is following. Um, from the perspective of the United States, Maybe they are leading from behind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, arguably <laughs> leading from behind. Certainly, from the perspective of the United States, they are they are leading this drive. I can say. Uh, with great certainty that all of the enthusiasms and trends that um, that Clara talked about on the European side are even more present on the U.S. side. And uh, there has been um, both a quantitative and qualitative uh, increase in the use of sanctions, which definitely predates o- Obama. It goes back, uh, it goes back, I think, decades. But we're seeing on the on the U.S. side an increase in the machinery of sanctions uh, uh, an increased tendency as a default option to reach to sanctions as the option of first resort when an international crisis arises in order to be able to say, to answer that sort of question that always comes up, what are you doing? Well, this is something to do. Um, and it's quite, it's a relatively easy thing to impose. Uh, the machinery has expanded a great deal. And now I think the the particular emphasis is on an area of sanctions that, that uh, Clara didn't mention, I don't think are as prominent in Europe, and that's on financial sanctions, on the idea that you can profit from the particular role of the dollar and the U.S. financial system in the world economy to create uh, leverage on uh, countries that uh, that really cuts them off from financing in a way that is a sort of a force multiplier of sanctions. So there's a great chapter actually in the connectivity was by Juan Zarate, yeah. who was one of the um, what does he call them? The green, but be, um, what they called the the green eye shade warriors. Yeah, yeah. Green, yeah. in the treasury, in treasury, um, treasury but, wars. You've advised, uh, you've advised principals, you've advised the Secretary of State on different things. What what is it that makes sanctions so attractive to leaders? Well, I think that they uh, they tend to be um, first of all easy to easy to implement um, in the sense that the machinery is already there you don't need to it's not very disruptive to the machinery of government or to the domestic society um, they as I said they answer the need 
um, to do something. They send a very strong message. And frankly, there's an increasing idea. You know, 10, 20 years ago, I think sanctions were seen as mostly symbolic actions. They were seen as a, a way of registering disapproval and a way of saying, you know, we're not, we're, we're, we're not going to stand for this particular action. But I think there's an increasing view that they actually uh, amount to a patient strategy of uh, creating policy change in target countries. Um, case one of this is Iran, which, is, which has really changed um, the way that people in the United States think about sanctions. Um, because if you look back at the, at the Iran debate, the, when the sanctions were imposed, uh, the, the nuclear-related sanctions beginning in 2002, there was a sort of uh, cynicism about them, which was, oh, well, this is something that we're doing in order to register disapproval but isn't really aimed at solving the problem. Um, and over time, the sanctions grew stronger, they multilateralized, um, and they became a, a real um, noose around the Iranian economy and eventually brought the Iranians to the negotiating table, or at least that's the narrative. And so, uh, so that think, success is really motivating other other efforts. So you think that it's because sanctions work or it's because people are less keen on putting troops on the ground and intervening in other ways? Well, they've never been very keen on putting troops in the ground. So I think that that's always been, um, that's always been a, a critical motivator. Um, I think that you, you, the, the problem that any, any principal has is when they, when they move forward to a problem, they, um, they, they need to do something and they need to have some belief that they won't just need to do something again six months or a year from now. Uh, sanctions were always, or not always, but have for a long time been the option of first resort for the United States. But now, they, now there are new, new levels and so they're becoming the option of second and third and even fourth resort. But the, the interesting thing, Clara, which you were talking about is the way that sanctions have changed. Because now, it's, you know, I suppose it's since the uh, Iraq sanctions became very unpopular that we've been focusing on this idea of smart sanctions, targeted sanctions, yeah. um, but which does relate a bit to, to other kind of tools like drones because the, the idea of being smart and scalpel-like um, and uh, inflicting a lot of pain, but just on a small number of bad guys rather than the good guys. That seems to be a core bit of uh, why people like sanctions, at least rhetorically. Is that right? Well, uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. I, I would say that um, we in, in the US we have a lot of rhetoric about smart sanctions, but when you talk to the Treasury people about them, they don't really believe that sanctions can be smart in that way. And, and every, every sanctions regime starts off with this idea of um, the sanctions will peer into the heart of the bad guy and only, and only punish those who have a bad heart. But quickly they move isn't that to the having an effect thing? on the whole economy. Because the Iran sanctions are kind of the least smart sanctions ever. I mean, yeah. I, when I went to Iran, I couldn't use my credit card. The whole country's been cut off from, from SWIFT. Um, maybe and, and it, it wasn't until they ceased being smart that they started being effective. Is that true? <laughs> well, actually, I'm I'm glad that uh, you both are, raise, are raising these points. Uh, in reality, um, what I what I was describing earlier about this evolution towards uh, sanctions that are broader, uh, all um, simultaneously marks a departure from uh, the notion of narrowly targeted sanctions. So in theory, we can continue to claim that sanctions by the EU are technically 
um, targeted because they are not comprehensive. So everything that falls short from a comprehensive embargo can still be um, labeled as uh, targeted. But in reality, they are much less targeted than they used to be in the past. So what we have witnessed within the council is a, a, an increasing uh, readiness to broaden the European the, Council. Yes, okay. well, the yeah, uh, or, or the security or the council. council or the Council of Ministers. <laughs> okay, is <laughs> is an increased uh, readiness to actually affect um, individuals or uh, segments of of society that are not directly linked to the objectionable. Uh, policies. But what is interesting about what uh, what you were mentioning before, Jeremy, is the fact that uh, even though uh, in theory we have this commitment to targeted sanctions and we have we abhor um, in comprehensive sanctions and their uh, indiscriminate uh, effects on society, uh, the fact is that uh, even though sanctions are well, even in those cases in which sanctions are uh, designed to be targeted, uh, when it comes to implementation. Uh, the, the the targets the group of uh, affected uh, targets broadens considerably, and what is interesting about this uh, development is that we do not we do not uh, see any genuine attempt to uh, limit these uh, broadening effects. Uh, in other words, uh, the private sector tends to overcomply with sanctions because they are afraid that uh, they they might face fines because uh, unknowingly or perhaps knowingly they uh, allowed some transactions that were not uh, were not allowed um, and uh, as a result you have many more people many more segments of society and many more sectors being affected than they than there ought to be but at the same time uh, it doesn't seem to me that at government level or uh, on the side of those who are designing the sanctions this is a big concern uh, on the uh, well, on the contrary, it seems to me that some uh, some segments of uh, of uh, decision makers might actually welcome the fact that uh, the uh, the effects tend tend to be broader than uh, they are designed. I mean, we all know that uh, in these processes, in these decision making processes, particularly uh, in a composite uh, setting such as the the uh, the European Union, you have people who go for well, who. Um, who aim at broader measures and others that uh, are contrary to those measures. So in the end, you always end up with a compromise. Yeah. be good to talk a bit about how um, uh, different governments go about that process and how they talk to companies. But maybe before we do that, we can just um, both have a, a deeper look at, at what the point of sanctions are and their track record in different um, areas. So... If we think about what sanctions are for, and I sort of try and summarise what we've heard so far. Um, first thing is telling people you don't like what they're doing. Secondly, trying to change their behaviour. Thirdly, might presumably might be avoiding doing stuff you don't want to do, like um, uh, invading countries or using military force. Are, are there any other kind of purposes beyond those three? Well, calming, Sig calming your do domestic constituencies. Yeah. So signalling action in order to not have to do something else. Yeah. Yes, I would rank that as the number one uh, <laughs> as the number one reason uh, yeah. that uh, that they're imposed. Um, I think that there is um, there. I think that those are the main reasons that uh, that you've covered. But I think that there are, um, that there are um, in these. Uh, asset freezes and in um, in certain of the Middle Eastern sanctions there's also an attempt to deny resources to the um, to the to the given state 
in order to um, limit their capacities for future mischief. And, and there's presumably, I mean, a lot of the sanctions also are after non-state actors. People talk about the war on terror. I mean, right. a lot of the financial sanctions start with right. the global war on terror. Yeah. So this notion that the, this notion of the financial sanctions is actually having a big impact on economies and on non-state groups yeah. really means that you that certain policymakers have begun to think of sanctions as an instrument which is actually quite crippling to its target. And could it so be also just, a way of of, uh, of, of um, getting ahead economically, knocking other companies? For example, I heard that the, the U.S. Uh, benefited a lot from European sanctions against uh, Russia because uh, American companies got access to, to, uh, to uh, the Russian market. I think that there that. might be those types of incidental effects, but I, I certainly never saw that as a motivation. And uh, I have to say that... And, that most of the countries and groups that are sanctioned are so small relative to uh, the U.S. or world economy that that certainly wouldn't have come into play. Russia is a minor exception. Is a minor exception, and it's somewhat more important. Um, and I think it needs to be said that in, in terms of qualitative leaps, that the sanctions on Russia are a, of a completely different order of magnitude and concept than any previous sanctions, just on the basis of the target. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, US, the sanctions put on Russia are bigger in their monetary effect than all of U.S. sanctions combined previous to, to the sanctions on Russia. The EU sanctions. The U.S. sanctions. The U.S. sanctions on Russia are bigger yeah. than all other ones combined. Yeah, just because of the size of the Russian economy and its role in the, in the, global, uh, in the global economy. So how much is it worth? I, I don't have the figure off the top of my head. But we'll the put point it on is our it, website, www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. <laughs> Claude, do you have any ideas about the monetary effect of either the Russian, uh, the the EU or, or US sanctions on Russia? No, actually, I, I was quite intrigued by these figures. <laughs> I'm also looking forward to hearing more about them. But uh, actually, in the well, the pattern that we have witnessed most of the time is one whereby the the sanctions by, uh, imposed by the US tend to be much tougher, much more stringent than those imposed by the EU, and uh, normally. Uh, U.S. efforts are directed towards getting the Europeans on board, uh, often facing quite a lot of resistance. So, Tougher in what sense? Well, they are they are more comprehensive. They're broader. They're less targeted. That's and, what you mean. Uh, the, yeah, and they, yeah. they also affect other sectors. But traditionally, there has been reluctance uh, on the on the part of the Europeans. And the fact that uh, starting in 2010, we have seen a change of attitude on the side of the Europeans is not something that comes from nowhere. It comes precisely from having been subject to U.S. pressure for a number of years and eventually having decided to, to side with the U.S. Can you talk US. a bit about the U.S. pressure? Because there's, there's like the diplomatic pressure, but there are also things like secondary sanctions against European companies that um that or any companies that are involved in trading with particular countries and then also the kind of um presumably uh the extraterritorial reach of american courts which has been quite expensive for a number of european banks such as bnp paribas are there other ways that the u.s puts kind of pressure on on third parties well, it, this is already the, quite a powerful tool, what you mentioned. If banks face the prospect of losing their license to operate in the U.S. market, they are basically forced to make a decision between doing trade with Iran or conducting operations with Iran or conducting operations in the U.S. And the, the choice is pretty obvious for a majority of banks. So, And has, this is already... has Europe ever used any tools like that? Are there any secondary sanctions against 
company like does the EU develop secondary sanctions or no no this is this is something why not well, that's. <laughs> I, I will simply say that they are a bit less uh, orthodox about the imposition of sanctions. They are. They also see themselves as being the, the guarantors of the dynamism of the European market. And I mean, in principle, this is quite a new development that the EU has uh, started to to follow uh, U.S. measures so closely. Actually, through uh, even during the 1980s. Uh, with, when the U.S. imposed quite stringent, uh, stringent sanctions on some uh, countries in the Mediterranean, uh, European well, uh, European countries were reluctant to follow suit, even though they were actually as affected or even more affected by the the, the policies of these of, of these countries than than the U.S. So the idea was to preserve access uh, to. Uh, energy and uh, to uh, to these markets for European companies. What are the other differences between US and EU approaches to sanctions? Well, there are plenty <clears throat> of differences. There, there, are, there are plenty of differences. I don't know if, if you heard about the recent um, sanctions imposed against Burundi. This is something that is pretty recent. There, were, there was a first wave of sanctions last year, and they have, st- they have just uh, imposed a second wave. The first thing that the U.S. did was to interrupt military cooperation with Burundi, while uh, what the EU has done is to withhold some of its development funds, which is quite interesting because in reality, uh, well, you would would, uh, expect the U.S. to impose the broadest sanctions and the EU to impose the most targeted sanctions. But uh, what the U.S. did in this particular case is a bit more uh, targeted because it only affects the, the military. Uh, while uh, well, withholding development aid is something that, uh, at least in the mid to well, uh, in the mid to long term, is bound to uh, to affect society as a whole. So um, even though you see a large coincidence uh, between the imposition of UN, uh, oh, sorry, of US sanctions and EU sanctions, uh, if you look specifically at the measures imposed, they they tend not to coincide. But this is something that is hardly ever looked into. So the, the media t- tend to refer to measures uh, simply as sanctions, but uh, it is rare that you actually find uh, specifications as to what exactly has been uh, has been cut off, uh, what's, what's, uh, what is the nature and the scope of the measures imposed. And they uh, almost always differ. Are, are there, Jeremy, are there any lessons you think Europeans can learn from the kind of machinery of government that the US uses on sanctions? So there seems yeah. to be a lot of sanctions offices and and also like attempts to to stop countries investing in in America like things like CFIUS and things like that. Is that what it's called? The thing which CFIUS is yeah, but CFIUS is not a sanction. CFIUS is uh, is the is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which which looks at how uh, whether there are national security implications of foreign investments in specific companies in the United States. Uh, and can and can disapprove specific mergers or investments. Um, I would say that there are there probably are lessons I, uh, for 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 Europe from the United States. I don't think Europe is is learning them, uh, nor do I think the United States is learning them. I think that the principal one that I saw is that is that these machineries have a bit of a life of their own, um, which is to say that once you create an instrument, you are much more likely to use it, and you create a constituency. Uh, within your government that has an interest in using it and an interest in continuing it. Um, so uh, 
at the moment, the sanctions machinery in the U.S. government is is, is a very high prestige, is very large, is very powerful within the bureaucracy. And so now, uh, when a um, when a when an issue comes up, there is a strong advocate for not just the president, but within the bureaucracy, a strong advocate for using sanctions. This also means that, uh, and I think that this is something that the EU really could focus on. Um, it's really hard to take sanctions off. Um, and this is because both because um, they're, they're create, the machinery creates a certain inertia uh, toward getting rid of them. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to justify all your, all your workers if, uh, if the sanctions go away. But maybe more importantly, um, it's because the sanctions are implemented, as, as was already pointed out, the sanctions aren't actually implemented by the government. The sanctions are implemented by the companies. And so that means that little signals coming from the machinery about what the sanctions both are and might be affect the way that the companies uh, do business. So you, so it's it's all easy to say, well, we are, you know, you publish in the Federal Register, we're removing this specific sanction against Iran, you know, go forth and multiply into Iran. But the companies very often don't do it um, because they what they're hearing is the political signals from the Congress or somewhere else or from within the Treasury Department that the sanctions might be might be put back on, that uh, it's unclear what the dividing line is between the sanctions that still remain and the sanctions that don't. And so actually nothing happens when a sanction is taken off. The other big sanctions thing which uh, gets talked about much is, is Cuba, not necessarily one of the, the fastest uh, success stories, given that I think the embargo was introduced in 1960. Um, what lessons do you think we can learn from that? Patience? Uh, President Obama... <laughs> No, I think that, you know, uh, the consensus, um, certainly in the United States, I'd be interested to hear what it is in Europe, is that the Cuba sanctions were were a massive failure. I mean, a failure in every way, um, because they um, because they not only didn't achieve their tar- their intended goal of um, changing the behavior or even changing the regime in Cuba, but they also actually did something which has been broadly noted in a lot of other sanctions cases, which is they cemented the regime in power. Um, specifically by cutting off the country from international commerce. They, cre- they allowed the, the, the regime to control all the levers of economic power within the country, and they gave the regime a ready narrative of foreign threat uh, that allowed them to assert control. And we've seen this dynamic, I think, in several other sanctions cases, but it's most prominent in Cuba. Certainly, um, I think that one of the narratives is that, you know, in in, uh, one of the lessons is that in a, in a case like Iran, you have a country which desperately wants and needs as it's poli- part of its political culture to have commerce and interaction with the rest of the world. Some countries aren't as interested in that. Uh, and some countries are much more willing to sacrifice like Cuba and North Korea. And th- those are harder targets. I think a second lesson is the incredible importance of multilateral sanctions. The U.S., even with its sort of hold on the um, on the international financial system, really has never been able, uh, as a unilateral measure, without the assistance particularly of the Europeans, to create a sanctions regime which is really going to change behavior on a serious issue. So what, what lessons do you think we should take, Clara? What lessons do you think Europeans are going to take? Actually, I couldn't agree more. And, um, I mean, in the... Uh, I, I, tend, I particularly agree with the, with the second point. This actually shows how important it is to actually multi, multilateralize sanctions. It is not, uh, I mean, it is wrong to look at sanctions from the point of view of their economic impact exclusively, because the economic impact 
is bound to be quite big if uh, only the U.S. imposes sanctions. But in order to acquire legitimacy, you actually need to uh, to acquire also more allies. And uh, the well, uh, in those cases in which you only have one unilateral sender, uh, the sanctions attempt uh, attempt becomes uh, very vulnerable from the point of view of legitimacy. It's it's bound to be contested. Actually, if we if we look at the uh, resolution that is passed yearly at the General Assembly against the, or condemning the embargo against Cuba, we have almost unan- uh, unanimity. Uh, well, against the embargo, there are only two countries that uh, vote against, and well, uh, almost no country abstains uh, from that voting. So this has, this proves how the the Cuban authorities have actually managed to um, um, evade uh, stigmatization or escape stigmatization, and actually managed they have managed to stigmatize the center government instead. It's a, it's it's pretty remarkable. So wonderful, wonderfully European uh, plea for alliances and multilateralism, uh, which is a great way to end this uh, this podcast, which actually incidentally did start by celebrating unilateralism and the power of American financial sanctions. But anyway, um, I slightly uh, been slacking a little with our bookshelf segment in in recent uh, weeks. We haven't had one for a while, and today I forgot to mention it to uh, to our guests at the beginning so in lieu of a bookshelf what we'll have is a giant plug for the connectivity wars the essay collection that we brought out uh, recently which has got a fantastic essay by clara called how the eu love to lo- learn to love sanctions but there are lots of other essays on sanctions juan zarate the one of the architects of the the u.s uh, sanctions in the bush administration wrote about the new geoeconomic game tom wright has a nice uh, tom uh, tom was a former colleague of yours wasn't he jeremy on how geopolitics will end globalization as we know it and there's a piece by Ulrike Franke, our researcher, looking at all sorts of different sanctions regimes, particularly from emerging powers. So um, there are links to that and to these magical statistics, if we manage to track them down from Jeremy on our uh, show page, which is at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Um, Please let us know if you have any uh, comments on this podcast. If you like it, do go to iTunes and review it and rate it there or on SoundCloud or Mixcloud. Um, the other thing which would be great to hear from you about is I promised a while ago to, to, to give uh, have a special segment on the re- British referendum at the end of each podcast, but um, it's quite nice to escape from the, the psychodrama which is going on in this country every now and again. So we haven't done it every single time, but thinking about possibly doing a special uh, Brexit uh, or British referendum uh, podcast, which could relieve some of the pressure on the world in 30 minutes. So do write to us, uh, write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu if you think this is a good idea. It'll be good to see if there's a, a market uh, for a podcast on the, on the referendum. But from Clara Portella, Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, it's thank you for now. The researcher for our podcast is Ulrika Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro.